The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Dean Baker, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, has a great blog, Beat the Press, and has some really interesting thoughts and uh, books as well. So, Dean, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get interested in the uh, the dismal science of economics? And what are you doing now? Thanks for having me on. So I'm now a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I actually co-founded with my friend Mark Weisbrock back at the end of the 90s. Before that, I was an economist at the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. I've been doing economics for more than three decades. And I guess the, the story, how I got interested back when I was an undergrad, I just came to think that economics was important uh, in terms of setting policy. It was important to understand it. So I actually wasn't originally a major in economics. I actually was a history major and came to economics uh, later, you know, still as an undergrad, but obviously went to grad school and, and everything. But anyhow, it just occurred to me, it, it was very important to understand how the economy worked if you wanted to make things better. And, you know, I felt you know, I wanted to be a productive person. So economics seemed to be a good path and better or worse, I think it was probably the right path for me. It seems like uh, we can have fun with the wording of how the economy works or if it works the way that you would hope it would. Yeah. What are some of the things that as you study in school and, and you know, went through your own career progression that you found people got wrong about the study of the economy? Well, there were a lot of things. I mean, better or worse, I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of to my view, uh, serious policy mistakes or misunderstandings that, you know, certainly the public, but also economists. I mean, one picking on one of the public that I harp on endlessly and beat the press. I've been lagging on this. People send me emails saying you haven't been on, you haven't been on the ball, which I'll, I'll confess I've been blogging much less in the last half year, year or so. But one of the things I hit on endlessly is that people have very little idea of where the budget goes. So people might think half the budget's going to things like food stamps and TANF, other sort of social welfare programs. So in fact, it's a tiny, tiny share. And I beat up on the press on that because they never they never put it as a share of the budget. So if you put down the food stamp budget, I should know what it is, but somewhere around 80 or 90 billion, which hell of a lot of money. I won't see that. I guess Elon Musk does, but not many others. 
But realistically, that's that's a tiny share of the budget. It's, it's about 2% of the budget. So we could say, oh, we really don't like food stamps, but that's not where our tax dollars are going to. And that's that's something, you know, again, this is my speculation because I've seen polling on it. People are tremendously confused about what takes up the bulk of the budget. People think it's going to things like food stamps, foreign aid, just not true. And, you know, again, I, I get upset with the media because it takes all of two seconds for them just to say instead of or in addition to 80 billion, I don't care, but convey information, say that it's, you know, 1.8% of the budget or whatever the exact figure is. It's a simple enough thing to do. And they never, they literally never do it. So that that's something the public often gets confused. But in terms of policy, I mean, I, I've seen this again, being around a long time. We have this idea that if the unemployment rate gets too low, when I'm saying we, the economics profession, that inflation will start to accelerate and we'll eventually have a point where if we don't do something about it and the unemployment rate's still too low, we're going to have a German-style hyperinflation. You go to the store with a wheelbarrow of money and get a loaf of bread. And the reality is that story is really hugely overplayed. So I'm not saying inflation is never a problem. It's been a problem in the last year and a half. But the idea that if just because the unemployment rate gets low, we're going to have inflation getting out of control, that that's just not right. And we've often seen the Federal Reserve Board, to my view, unnecessarily cause unemployment because they've had this view. So in the 90s, they raised interest rates, I think unnecessarily, I'm thinking the mid 90s, not the late 90s, slowed the economy, raised the unemployment rate. More recently, I won't Go into the current one because I think that's more contentious, arguable. But in in uh, the middle of the last decade, when Janet Yellen was Fed chair, she raised interest rates when there was no clear reason to. There was no inflation. Jerome Powell, when he came in, continued the path of interest rate hikes she she'd started. So I think that was a major misconception that led to very bad policy. And I'll just mention one other because it's obviously in the news: the issue of debt. You know that debt's a problem and. You know, I'm not going to say nowhere, never is too much government debt a problem, but I think realistically in the U.S. case, it's not a problem. And you hear people saying, and again, it's a big number story, 31 trillion, again, incredibly large number, no doubt about it. But we have a really big economy. And the reality is it's just not a big problem. It's not, I would say it's not even a problem at all. So I think that's a, it's a common misconception that people think we're facing some crisis because we have this huge debt. And the reality is we'd be much worse off if we didn't have this huge debt because the debt was run up for the most part. I'm not going to justify every penny of government spending, but for the most part, for good purposes. So I share the uh, the frustration and the cynicism around the media. I think part of, it, of this is that you and I both know that it, it sounds for a better headline when you say billions as opposed to percentages. Right. I mean, that's gravity yeah. towards. So, so there's a communication aspect to it. And I would I would wrestle with this. I don't know if it's if it's the fault of the media or the individual listening to not then think a little bit deeper. It's like, is that actually a big number or not? If if people gravitate towards the billion dollar wording as opposed to the percentage, then as a media entity that's trying to make money, you're going to communicate that way. Yeah, well, I, I understand that. And, you know, I know I've gotten to know many, many economics reporters over the years. and. The question is, uh, obviously, they're writing for, you know, whether it's the Times or the Post, whoever it is, they're writing for an editor and they have to satisfy the editor. But they, they very few have told me that I put in that that was 1.8% of the budget and they took it out. 
Very. Uh, I've almost never heard that. I'm not saying never because I probably did hear it sometime. But I can't think of it. And it's, it's I'm sort of pressing on the reporters saying, OK, you your responsibility, first and foremost, should be to try and inform your audience. And if your editor prevents you. OK, I understand that you got to get a paycheck at the end of the month. You don't, you know, that's the they're, they're not going to run that because they think it's going to make their their articles less interesting, their news stories less interesting. I understand that. I'm not happy about it. But but they haven't told me that they just you know, they just don't feel the need to do it. And again, if I you know, I think most reporters do feel a sense of responsibility that they should be trying to inform their audience and they can't tell me. I've never had one of them say that when they write down 80 billion that any substantial share. And I, you know, I know I read the New York Times, I read the what, you know, they have a more educated readership than the random person. You know, they're overwhelmingly college educated, man, and advanced degrees, but still very few of the people reading that have any good sense. Is 80 billion a really big number? Is it and half the time they don't even say, is it over one year? Is it I don't know how many times I've seen a number where I myself I have to look it up because they write down transportation bills. Those tend to be five years, six years, eight years. So you see a number, 300 billion. Well, is that one year? That's a pretty good chunk of money in one year. And then you see, no, it was actually six years, but that's not even in the article. I think they have a responsibility to try and, uh, you know, educate, provide information to their audience. And oftentimes they're, they're simply not doing it. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Yeah, mentioned earlier that the problem is most people don't know where the money goes in to the budget. I think a lot of people are under the impression that it's sort of the cliche, which I think there's a degree of truth to that all this money is being spent by the government because the government's inefficient. It sounds to me like you may think that's not obviously the full story, that there's a degree of obfuscation purposely because those that are in power are able to shift funds in certain ways that enrich them and and their friends more. I think there's an interest in in obscuring where the money's going and, and cultivating this idea that the government's inefficient. I mean, one of the uh, one of the areas I've done a lot of work social security. I think it's a fantastic program. It's, you know, serves tens of millions of people. It's very efficient. I think few people realize that. So when I'm saying efficient, I just mean the percent of administrative costs, how much is going to the bureaucrats running the program. And I'm sorry, no many bureaucrats are good people. They're hardworking, but whatever, you know, we, we, it just as a practical matter, we don't want a lot of people shuffling paper. We want, you know, people should get their social security checks. Some should get them on time. If there's a problem, they should, whatever. Their administrative costs are actually very, very low. Very few people realize that. And I remember the Washington Post, probably about seven or eight years ago, they ran a big front page piece, big headline, Social Security paid, and I'm forgetting the exact number, but let's say it was like $500 million to dead people. And you go, oh, wow, they're paying money to dead people. And then you read the piece and you go, well, this was actually, I think it was over five years. And this was a period where they paid out somewhere around $4 trillion. And it turned out they actually got half of the money back. 
And it came to, I, I forget, it was like six one thousandth of one percent of what they paid out. And you go, look, we'd like it to be zero. You know, Social Security is supposed to pay checks to people in their retirement, not after they're dead. But, you know, it's a huge system, tens of millions of people. This is over a four or five year period. Yeah, some checks will go out incorrectly. And that probably the biggest part of that story. Some people are trying to pull off the government. But the biggest part of the story is someone's, you know, parent or husband, wife dies. They probably don't think the first thing they have to do is call the Social Security office and say, oh, stop sending the check. So, you know, so it actually is an extremely efficient program, but they ran this big story as though, oh, my God, look at these bungling bureaucrats. They're sending out huge amounts of money to dead people. And the reality, when you looked at it for a minute, was, no, they're actually showing it's pretty damn efficient. You had said a little bit earlier that, you know, people talk about debt and refer to it as a problem. I always go back to it's more nuanced than just saying high debt is a problem, (laughs) right? I mean, debt, debt is deflationary when you can't issue more of it. And that's where it becomes a problem. So as long as you keep on issuing debt, you can argue that that kind of you know writes itself over time. What are some of the misconceptions that you think people have around government debt and whether or not this can persist? Because that's always the boogeyman, right? That at some point, all this debt has to be paid off and the economy is going to come to a complete halt. Yeah. So the idea of one, the idea that the government, that this has to be paid off. So I've heard, I don't know how many people say, oh, we're leaving this to our kids. And, you know, that to my view, it's unbelievably silly. We're leaving a whole society to our kids. So the idea that what we measure, you know, whether we've treated our kids correctly or not, is the size of the government debt. I mean, look, we're going to educate our kids or not. I mean, that's really bad if we haven't, you know, but somehow we'd be doing some them some big favor if we said, oh, we're not going to spend any more money on education. I'd have to check with the total figures. But if you took state, local and federal spending, it's probably around six, seven, eight hundred billion a year. So zero that out. OK, that'd be great. We could balance the budget that way. Yeah. And then we shut down all our schools. So have we done right by our kids? Um, we build, you know, maintain the infrastructure. You know, great thing. I thought President Biden got through an infrastructure bill. It was bipartisan. He had Republican support, too. So, you know, that's going to maintain the quality of our infrastructure, improve the quality of infrastructure. If we didn't have good infrastructure, we've done right by our kids. We have climate change. You know, I, I know there's a lot of politicians who like to pretend we don't. But, you know, it's it, it's a real issue. I, I lived for a number of years in southern Utah where we had severe drought. It's raining this year, but it, we had severe drought. And I suspect that will come back giving our kids a really messed up planet, that these are things that we're going to, you know, if we're talking about what we do for future generations, these are really big issues. And when we come to the debt itself, insofar as a burden, it's the interest on the debt. It's not, you know, we have been joking with people. It's not really a joke because we have the debt ceiling. And obviously that's going to have to be dealt with one way or another. But you can reduce the value of the debt. One of the things you could do, it's a little technical, but we issued bonds a couple of years ago, 10-year bonds at a 1% interest rate. Well, those sell at a big discount in the market now. So let's say I could buy a $1,000 bond for $800 because it pays 1%. The bond that gets issued today pays 3.5%. So it'll pay like 800. I don't know. That's not an exact number, obviously. So we could reduce the nominal value of the debt by buying up these thousand dollar bonds for $800. We'd be reducing the nominal value of the debt. I mean, it's a really silly thing to do, but if we're concerned about the nominal value of the debt, well, that will do it. That will reduce the nominal value of the debt. If we were looking at the interest burden, our interest burden is actually pretty low. It's about 1.6% of GDP. 
Cubans had 3.1, 3 3.2% of GDP back in the 90s, which, by the way, were a very prosperous decade. So there's just this tremendous fear built up around the debt that is literally based on nothing. And, and I'll just throw in one more thing here. Japan is sometimes held up as the model of a bad story. Well, their debt to GDP ratio is about 260%. So if our debt to GDP ratio were 260%, we'd be around $65 trillion, more than twice where we are today. Japan, the interest it pays on its debt is about three-tenths of a percent of GDP. They've not been worried about inflation. They've been worried that inflation was too low. So the scare stories that people have been saying about the debt, there just literally is nothing there. So, yeah, the debt, as I say, it's not a problem. Again, I don't mean to say it can never, ever, ever be a problem, but we're not in a situation that's a problem today, nor is it likely to be in the foreseeable future. But can you make an argument that there is a, a correlation and causation around debt loads and income inequality? I mean, those that are very wealthy are the ones that can take advantage of the lowest rates, right? So how does that factor into it? Because I, I do think that you can make a case that there, it's not good for society if debt is the continuous answer to old problems because you erode more and more of the middle class if that's the case. Well, I'm not saying debt's the answer, but you're accumulating debt for something. So, you know, we just ran up a huge amount of debt with the pandemic. And what that was about was keeping people whole through a period where large chunks of the economy was shut down. And that was great for the middle class. I mean, we actually... A lot of middle class workers, of course, lost their jobs, particularly in things like restaurants that were shut down for, for several months in most of the country, pretty much everywhere. We kept those people whole. We gave them unemployment insurance. We, we encouraged, uh, we had the Paycheck Protection Program, poorly managed, but the idea was a good one that you encourage companies to keep workers on the payroll and the government paid, I believe, it was 80% of their wages. So that was that helped the middle class. So we could say abstractly, uh, would we have been better off if we could have done that without debt? I don't know how you could. I mean, raise taxes hugely. Uh, that wouldn't have been very smart. But if we could have done this somehow and had no debt associated with it, yeah, that would have been better. But we were doing something very useful as we built up that debt. And, and again, I think in general, that will be the case. And, and just to be clear, I'm not saying every government expenditure is a good one. There's definitely cases where you could point to spending that's not good, be better if we spent less, or in some cases, none at all. But that's that's not most of the story of the government debt. All right. So I know you've done a lot of work on income inequality. You wrote a book called Rigged. I named this Twitter space, The Modern Economy is Rigged. I want you for the audience to lay out your thesis on how intellectual property is really the biggest driver or one of the major drivers of income inequality in the U.S. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, it's striking to me how little attention the issue of patent copyright protection and other forms of intellectual property also, but those are the most common, most important ones, 
how much money is steered by them. And again, that it is a major source of inequality. I guess the other point I'll make on that is that it, these, these are optional. These are policies that these weren't handed down to us by God. So we, we, it's, it's a government policy that we have patents and copyrights. We decide how long they are, how strong they are, whether things could be patented. You can now patent life forms. You couldn't do that 40 years ago. These are all matters of policy. So in saying it's a source of inequality, uh, when we talk about the increased value of skills, STEM skills, uh, science, uh, technology, engineering, and math, that's largely a story of intellectual property. That's what made those skills valuable. So the reason uh, you have people get lots of money in, in biotech is because if they have an innovation, they can get a patent on it, a patent monopoly, and then they they sell a drug for hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that goes from the rest of us. We pay a huge amount of, amount of money for prescription drugs, and it goes into the pockets of, one, the drug companies, but also a lot of the, the workers at the drug companies. You have a lot of highly paid workers at a place like Moderna or Pfizer um, who, who have STEM skills. And that's in many, many other sectors. I mean, I focus a lot on prescription drugs, just because it's a huge area. I mean, I find even, even among economists, uh, they don't realize how much we spend. We're about going to spend probably around $550 billion this year on prescription drugs. It's about 2.2% GDP. It's a, it's a lot of money. And if we didn't have patents and other types of intellectual property protections, we'd probably spend less than $100 billion. So it's an enormous amount of money that comes out of all of our pockets and it goes to a relatively small number of people. And just to take an example that you know, has been in the news lately, Moderna, the company that developed one of the mRNA vaccines for, for COVID on, on the government's dime, by the way, um, we created five Moderna billionaires. That was a Forbes assessment as of actually it was two summers ago. It was the summer of 2021. So this is a major source of inequality that you have. Some people are getting very, very rich because we have patents, copyrights, and other types of protection. Bill Gates used to be my, well, I can still be my poster child. He's not the richest person in the world anymore, but he's still plenty rich. If the government didn't threaten to arrest people who made copies of Microsoft software without his permission, he wouldn't be, he'd probably still be working for a living. So it's you, you can find, again, there's any number of examples of people who, who got their wealth through intellectual property. And, you know, the key point I am making, you know, we ever, I'm sure everyone listening is going, well, who would innovate, who would do, you know, do research on drugs, who would, you know, develop new software? Well, there are other ways to pay people. And in fact, Moderna is a great example. We did pay them. We still, we paid them and then we gave them the rights and the, the, the vaccine. So it's kind of incredible in my view. You paid them twice in effect. But the fact that we we choose to rely to such a great extent on patent and copyright monopolies, that's a really big factor leading to inequality and uh, and also abuses. I'll just uh, I, I'll stop in a second. I could go on all day on this stuff. But The New York Times just had a piece, I think it was yesterday, about the arthritis drug, drug Humira. That's been a really big seller for them. They sell, uh, I think, a year's doses that around $60,000 per person. And it's an effective drug. It's a great drug. I mean, it's helped a lot of people. But a patent is supposed to only have a limited lifespan, 20 years. Well, their initial patents and started marketing the drug, I think it was in 2000. So they would have expired in, in 2016. They had patent, the patents were a few years before they began marketing. And what 
the AbbVie, the company that uh, manufactures Chimera, what they did was they took out all these other patents in 2013, 14, 15, 16, many of them very trivial. But what they did was they threatened to sue any generic that entered. And the problem you have here is when a company has a patent, they have the right to sell it as a monopoly. So as I was saying, they're selling it for 50, 60,000. What would the generic enter sell with that? Probably a fifth, maybe a tenth of that. They have much less incentive to fight it. So AbbVie says, look, we're going to go to the map. We're going to go take this through court. You're going to go through appeals. You know, we'll try and take it to the Supreme Court. If we lose there, you're going to be in the courts forever. Why don't you make a deal with us? And what the Times article is pointing out is that's exactly what happened. The generics agreed, okay, we're going to delay marketing our drug. We, in principle, should be able to do it in 2016. We're going to agree to delay it to 223. So we're just now seeing the first competitors come in the market. So that's the sort of thing that, you know, we hugely raise the price of drugs, which again, it's not just money, it's people's lives, people's health. And also we're making a small number of people very, very rich because most of us are not making money off AbbVie's patent monopolies. Is it fair to say that there's a, a strong correlation between healthcare inflation and the strength of patent laws and, and kind of the entrenchment of protection uh, there? I mean, it sounds to me like that's sort of the... The key ultimately competition brings down prices, right? So to the extent yeah, it's yeah. monopoly there, right? And that's what keeps the the inflation going. Yes, it's a very big chunk of healthcare inflation. So if you look at spending on prescription drugs as a share of GDP, and obviously it'd be more important as a share of healthcare spending overall, but as a share of GDP, it was around four tenths of a percent of GDP from 1960 to 1980. And what's struggling is there wasn't even an upward trend. So today, four-tenths of a percent of GDP would be roughly $100 billion a year. After 1980, we had changes in, in patent laws. Most importantly, the Bayh-Dole Act made it much easier for uh, companies to get patents on research that was at least partly funded by the federal government. After that, prescription drugs began to rise very rapidly as a share of GDP to currently, as I said, 2.2%, 2.3%. So that's an enormous increase in, in, in share of GDP, you know, from four tenths of a percent to there about to 2.2, 2.3%. And obviously it's even larger as a share of our healthcare costs. So that's been a really big factor. It also comes up, patent by the way, also come up in other areas. So uh, medical equipment, you know, again, that's the reason medical equipment, you know, the latest MRI machine scanning technology that the reason these are expensive is because they're patent monopolies on them. I mean, they're sophisticated manufacturing, so they won't be, you won't be able to buy it with the money in your back pocket but you wouldn't have these machines selling for millions of dollars. So, um, so there too, it's, it's a really, really big issue. So yeah, it's a tremendously important part of healthcare, healthcare inflation. I don't want to say it's the only thing, but it, it has been a really big factor in it. Let me uh, reset the room for the remaining team. So everybody here, please make sure you follow Dean Baker on Twitter. Again, I'm streaming this via Zoom, but he is on Twitter, has a number of Great books. I always encourage many of you to check out available on Amazon. If anybody wants to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. Okay. I know you, you, you trace this Dean to, you know, the last four decades, five decades, but was there some kind of moment in history where the, the patent protection really sort of accelerated in a big way? I have to imagine it's more than just sort of a, a gradual trend that there might've been some key moments that, resulted in where we are now? I think the Bayh-Dole Act that I mentioned in 1980 uh, was a really big turning point. So after that, 
Well, let me go change it the other way. Prior to that, patents didn't seem to be a major concern in public policy. But these things, you know, and it's kind of a classic economic story that you get where, where you get rents. People, in effect, get money that in excess of what we might think they deserve based on their economic contribution, that they tend to exploit those and try to make them larger. So the classic story would be just about every economist will yell and scream if you say, oh, let's have a 20 percent tariff on steel. Because they'll say, not only are you raising the price of steel, but the steel manufacturers are going to be running to Congress, say, oh, make it 25%. Oh, it's going to be for five years, make it 10 years. So once they get a really big foot in the door, they want to push it further and further. So after you had the Buy-Dole Act passed, you had all sorts of other measures that were designed to increase, uh, make patents, and copyrights too, by the way, longer and stronger. We actually set up a specific appellate court for patents here in the hearing patents. And the reason for that was that very often you'd have patent cases and the patent holders would lose their case on appeal. And the argument that the drug companies and other, it wasn't just drug companies, but drug companies, tech companies, others who were in this situation, what they were saying is, oh, these, these appellate court judges, they don't understand intellectual property. So we need a court that's devoted specifically to intellectual property. And they got that. And that court much more frequently upholds the, the patent holder's rights um, or claims, I should say. So that that was a big event. We saw expansion. I mentioned before, you could patent things like life forms. Didn't used to be the case. You could patent software. You didn't used to be able to patent software. I think it was just 1991 that you were able to patent software, patent business methods. Um, sometimes you would get really crazy things. Amazon tried to patent one-click shopping. You know, I mean, it's you know part of a, what's something supposed to be patentable. It's not obvious. Well, once we have computer technology, one-click shopping is pretty obvious. So they lost that. So I should point that out. But I mean, they they did file a patent for it, and I don't know how much they were able to discourage competition for how long. Again, it went to court and they eventually lost it. But you know, this this just shows the effort to try and make patent and copyright monopolies longer and stronger. How does that dynamic, as it relates to the U.S., factor into income inequality and wealth gaps in other countries? I mean, in particular, China, right? I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of copying of intellectual property when it comes to uh, China. But I'm curious, how does that relate to sort of a global phenomenon of widening in, uh, income inequality? Yeah, it's a really good question. We've tried to push to make U.S.-style patent rules uh, apply more generally. And that's been a really big part of pretty much every trade agreement in the last three decades. So it was in NAFTA. It was very big in the WTO. We have the, the TRIPS Accords, trade-related aspects of intellectual property. It might not be aspects. Anyhow, that basically apply U.S.-type patent law to every country in the WTO, which is almost every country in the world. Um, so we were trying to have that apply everywhere. Now, that was mostly to protect U.S. industry. The story, and I, I can't vouch for it, but the story that I've seen repeated is that basically Pfizer wrote the TRIPS Accords and they brought them to, to the Clinton administration. They said, fine, we'll go push for it. And, you know, the U.S. is the big actor here. So the U.S. says, OK, this is going to be part of the this is the Uruguay round of the, of the WTO. That was uh, 1995, I think, or 94. And uh, this is going to be the deal. And they were able to get it through. So that was that was about protecting their intellectual property. I mean, I'm sure they understood that would help people make claims for intellectual property themselves in other countries, but they're mostly trying to protect the, their own. Now, when we come to China, 
we've seen both stories. On the one hand, they have a lot of unauthorized software, music, movies. You know, I, I can't go to be up to date on these things, but it used to be the case that you could very freely get unauthorized copies of the latest movies for almost nothing there. Again, I can't say that's still the case. I'm inclined to think it is. I just don't can't speak from any any sort of direct knowledge on that. At the same time, they're also looking to have to strengthen their own patent and copyright rules to you know protect their companies. So how they're going to go forward, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, this is an area I would I would love to see the United States go in the other direction. I realize this isn't about to happen, but Rather than, you know, us trying to have longer, stronger patent copyright monopolies and China doing the same thing, I'd I'd rather see us cooperate more where we can. And I'll just give a very specific example. We had the pandemic. It was a worldwide pandemic. We all would have benefited if we had shared our technology. I understand Moderna wouldn't have been happy, but if we had pulled our technology, China developed vaccines too. They probably were not as effective as our mRNA vaccines, but it looks like they were actually pretty effective. So if we had all pulled our technology and let anyone anywhere in the world make vaccines who had the manufacturing capacity, we all would have benefited. We could have vaccinated the world much more quickly and presumably stopped the spread and maybe prevented some of the new variants from ever developing. But, you know, we didn't go that route. But, you know, going forward, I would love to see, you know, healthcare technology. It'd be fantastic if we could pull it and just have it be open source. Same with climate technology. We want everyone in the world to have access to clean energy, to energy storage batteries at the, at the lowest possible price. So that means not having patents and other protections. Again, I, unfortunately, I don't think we're going that route. I think we're going the opposite path, but I think we'd benefit enormously from doing that. It doesn't, doesn't always say the other really just relate mostly to antitrust and, and laws and, and execution around that. I mean, the way you resolve natural monopolies is by definition with competition. I understand, obviously, the idea that patents are designed to try to prevent that. But it seems to me that the root cause of this is ultimately just sort of a lack of government actions around just breaking up companies in general. I see those to some extent different issues. You know, I, I agree. We've done a horrible job on antitrust going back, you know, to, to the 80s. I think the Reagan era was really when you, you had to change. And to be fair, it was bipartisan. I mean, Clinton had pretty much the same policy as his predecessor Bush's follower, Bush. So, so I think it was pretty much bipartisan. I think we are seeing a change with that with the, with the Biden administration. But I see this as a different story from intellectual property because it's, you know, again, the whole point of a patent monopoly is for it to be a monopoly. And there is a logic. I mean, I understand that. You know, so we're saying, OK, you're going to spend all this time trying to develop a new drug. Well, you're not going to do that if. You know, the day you develop it and you, you, the FDA approves it, you're going to have five other companies selling it at, you know, just what it costs to manufacture it because they didn't have to have the research costs. So I, I understand that there's a, there's a clear logic, but the point is to give them a monopoly. Now, again, my argument is, why don't we just pay for the research up front? And again, we already pay for a lot of research, Moderna being a great example. But even apart from that, the, the National Institutes of Health spends over $50 billion a year in biomedical research. It's generally more basic, but there's not a principal reason why we couldn't say, OK, here's another $50 billion, and we want you actually to 
develop drugs, to develop vaccines, to you know bring it through to the final product and, and contract out. They already contract out most of it. So I'm not talking about creating a huge government bureaucracy. Contract it out. Contract it with Pfizer. I don't care. You know, but the point is that you know it'd be paid for up front. So then there'd be no reason to then give a patent monopoly because you already got paid. We're not going to pay you twice. Right. It's kind of like in a sales job, right? It's like front end versus back end, right? <laughs> Let me yeah. Show. Yeah. You know, so we either... We either give you a salary, give you, I mean, I understand often combine the two, but the point is those are alternative ways to pay people. And I think there's a, a really good argument, certainly with medical research, biomedical research, that the payment should be up front rather than making our drugs really expensive. And again, it's one of these things that, you know, I just scratch my head. We created absurd problems for ourselves. I remember when the hepatitis C drug Sylvati came out, it was a great breakthrough. So it actually cured hepatitis C, that's a debilitating, sometimes deadly disease. You suddenly can give people the drug and they take it, I think it's over a three month period. And the vast majority of people were cured. So it's a great breakthrough, but they were charging 80,000 for the treatment. And yeah, these questions, you know, serious questions when it costs 80,000 go, okay, well, we have a lot of people with hepatitis C. They're often drug abusers, alcohol. Yeah. Should, you know, should government pay that? Some of them are in prison. Should the government pay $80,000? Tough question. I mean, I'm not going to give you what's what I think is the correct answer. It doesn't matter. But the point is, what did it actually cost to manufacture the drug and distribute? It was like three or four hundred bucks. So if you go, we could cure a debilitating, deadly disease for three or four hundred dollars. We're going to argue about whether we should pay for it. I mean, they would almost anyone just say, yeah, pay the three or four hundred bucks. You'd save someone's life. So it, it creates, to my view, unnecessary problems that they just wouldn't be there if we didn't have the patent monopoly. And in, in your work, is there, um, it, does it lean more towards the, the strengthening of the patents occurs under Republican administrations, Democrat administrations, or is it irrespective of, of who's in charge? It had largely been bipartisan. It's been striking that the Biden administration is challenging the pharmaceutical industry, lowering some prices of, uh, well, for example, diabetes, insulin. So they are, the the Biden administration is actually, in that sense, taking a step away from supporting patents as much as uh, prior administrations. But the Clinton administration had done a lot to expand patents. It was very, it it was as aggressive as said, you had the Trips Accord and the WTO put in there under the Clinton administration at the request of Pfizer. So they were very supportive of longer, stronger patent monopolies. But the Obama administration, same story. Uh, we, you know, the, we had this big effort to have the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They actually would have had an agreement probably two years earlier, except that the Clinton administration, again, at the behest of the pharmaceutical industry, was pushing for tighter. They weren't actually patented, related to patent, uh, data exclusivity, not worth getting into details, but basically another form of intellectual property. And they it delayed the agreement for several years. And as a result of that, the U.S. wasn't in the agreement because, of course, uh, you ended up with Donald Trump in office who didn't support the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So um, but, yeah, it's really been both parties had had supported uh, longer, stronger uh, intellectual property rules uh, with the Biden administration first now making some big steps. I'm not trivializing at all. Some big steps in the other direction. I and mean, we'll have to see you know, how, how far he's prepared to go. But that is is a change in policy. The challenge, I'm sure, is that it's like, how do you how do you determine just the right amount of length or just the right amount of strength, right, for these these laws? I mean, it's very easy to identify the extreme, but what's sort of the, the sweet spot? Well, well, to my view, you know, again, I'm speaking for, I'd like to see us move towards open source. 
where you pay for the research up front. And what I'd like to see, again, I'm very happy with the Biden, Biden administration's done. I'd like to see them go further on, on lowering prices, price controls on drugs, and as you have throughout Europe. So this is not new or radical or whatever. It's, it's something that has been done. But what I'd really love to see is more direct funding of the development of drugs, vaccines. And I sort of have a hero here, uh, Dr. Peter Hotez, at the University uh, was at Baylor University in Texas. He developed a coronavirus vaccine, a COVID vaccine. I should say his team. He obviously didn't do it alone. And that's entirely open source. And he did a shoestring. I think he got seven or eight million dollars in grants. I think some was from the government, some from private charities. Anyhow, you could do more cases. They, the NIH has a budget of over 50 billion a year. If they could put some of that into trying to actually develop drugs and having them be in the public domain. So as mentioned before, the, the arthritis drug Humira, you know, selling for 50, 60,000. Imagine that NIH could fund the development of another arthritis drug comes on the market and sells for $300. It would drive home the point. So I think what I'd like to see again is get a foot in the door, find places where you could fund the research up front and have it all be open source. And then as soon as it's it's ready to be approved by the FDA, you could have generics producing it and selling it cheaply. So that, that's what I would love to see being the focus. I know they're not going there, but that, that's what I would like to see be the focus. How does any of this connect to some of these trends we've seen when it comes to the differential between you know, CEO pay and, and investors and workers? I saw that bit on the, on the trailer around investors getting dividends, which are nowhere near the amount of you know, packages that some of these CEOs get. Is there a connection there? Because it seems like that's also a pretty big trend that doesn't help with the widening wealth gap. Yes, it's a really huge deal. It's not directly related to patents, copyrights. But again, I think it is a failing of our system that we've seen this explosion in CEO pay over the last four or five decades. If you go back to the 60s and 70s, the typical CEO of a major company was paid 20 to 30 times the pay of an ordinary worker. Today, it's 200 to 300 times. And what I've argued, and I think there's good research, not just mine by any means, that, that supports this is that basically CEO pay bears, bears very little relationship to their contribution to the firm. And this isn't a moral issue. I'm not saying are they good people? Are they doing good things, bad things? It's simply, you know, just how economists are, are taught to think about people's pay. So an auto worker, if they get paid 30 bucks an hour, well, that's supposed to be because that's how much they produce for the company. And if they produce more principal, company would pay them more. If they produce less, well, the company would say, you have to take a pay cut or we'll fire you, you know, whatever. Again, not to say those work perfectly, but that that's the story. With the CEO, there's no one pushing downward. So ostensibly, you have boards of directors that are supposed to work for shareholders. And what they're supposed to be saying, they're the ones who determine the CEO pay. Well, we're paying the CEO 20, 30 million, and that's common now in Fortune 500 companies. Sometimes they get a lot more, but whatever, 20 or 30 million. Um, could, we, could, could we pay this person half as much? or 20% less, you don't have to go that far, whatever. Or could we get someone else who'd be just as good and pay them less? They don't ask that question. And that's because basically they're friends of the CEO. And, and there was a great study. Someone just did a survey of directors of major companies. Uh, this is uh, some researchers at the University of Texas about two years ago. And they asked them, how do you see your job? And only about 20%, that would sound an exact figure, but only about 20% 
said that they thought containing CEO pay, reigning pay, reigning in pay of top management was part of their job. Most of them thought their main job was serving management. So there's no one, there's no one checking CEO pay. So what happens is you get, you know, going back 40 years or paid two, two million, equivalent two million today, they go three, four million. And the way the, the CEO pay is determined is that you have the, the boards are looking at the CEOs of comparable companies. So the, the CEOs, the board at, at GM looks at what are they paying the CEO at Ford? Oh, that CEO is getting paid 10 million. Well, our CEO is at least as good. They should get 12 million. And then when Ford comes around, they go, oh, well, ours should get 14 million. It's just an upward escalator. There's no check on CEO pay. And the reason I see this being so important, it's not just the CEO, although that is important, but that affects pay structures throughout the economy. So if the CEO is getting 25, 30 million, probably the chief financial officer is getting 12, 13, 14, 15 million. The next echelon of corporate execs might be getting two or three million. Compare that to a world where the CEO is getting three million. You'd have a very different pay structure. And obviously, the more that goes to those at the top, there's less for everyone else. So I think that's a really big deal. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's an area that's underappreciated both among economists and in policy circles more generally. Yeah. You know, it's, as you're saying, I wonder if that's sort of a um, one of the unintended consequences of just a, a world of passive investing and, and short term trading. Right. I mean, you don't have activism. You don't have investors basically saying, no, this isn't right. You need to allocate more towards dividends as opposed to CEO pay. Everybody just, you know, buys a basket of stocks and who cares about the individual components because it's about the average. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the in principle, you know, you have big institutional investors like Vanguard, where they could say, hey, wait a second, your CEO is not anything special. You don't have to pay them 30 million or give them 15 million. But they don't. They, you know, again, I haven't been in the rooms, but uh, I have seen accounts from people who have been. And they say they're all friends. They just want to they want to stay in good terms with the top management because they, they want to they want to be on the phone call where they're providing information saying, oh, we're, we have plans for a stock split or we have plans. We're, we're looking to have an acquisition. So they want to be in those circles. So they just don't have the incentive to say, hey, wait, this doesn't make sense that uh, these these CEOs are getting such high pay. They're not special people. Uh, no, so no one's doing that. Yeah, I just wonder how you can even attempt to reverse that. I mean, I, I, I often rant on these conversations around shorter and shorter attention spans. Um, and I think that also becomes hard to, hard to get people to focus on. But to, yeah, you know, one of the things that you know I've proposed, and I don't know that this is the, the magic bullet, but in the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act that was passed in 2010, there's a provision for say on pay where every three years, companies have to send out the CEO pay package to shareholders for just straight up or down. Do you, do you, do you approve it? Now, there's no direct consequence. It's an embarrassment uh, if they say no, but, but that's rare. 98% are there about vote yes. But what I proposed uh, is that if they vote no, that the directors lose their pay. So directors at a major company will typically get 300, 400,000 a year for their work, which is very part-time work. So it's a pretty good pay. So if you said, okay, if the shareholders decide that you messed up, you paid this person so much that we're voting no, because again, it's very rare, again, then then you lose your pay. I think if that just happened in a few cases, I think that could be a real change in, in directors' attitudes. Now, I don't know that would be enough, 
But I think it would at least be a wake up call that, yeah, it is your job to make sure the CEO is not overpaid. And you better take that seriously. Maybe for the uh, last few minutes here, and again, this will be a podcast, as is the case with all these daily spaces that I run. I know you want to touch briefly on demographic concerns when it comes to the U.S. and China. You often hear that that term that demographics is destiny. It's, a, I think, a legitimate argument, but correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, we are headed towards a broader disinflationary, deflationary bust. Never mind the debt. It's all about the average age of a society. Do you think some of those concerns are unfounded? What's your what's your take on the demographic side of, of where we are from a developed economy standpoint? Well, I've been kind of amazed because I've been hearing, I've, I've been in these debates for three decades. And back in the 90s, the central concern, you had all the deficit hawks, many of them are still there today. But I remember Peter Peterson, the uh, hedge fund billionaire, he was one of the most vocal people. He's saying, oh, my God, you know, we're going to have this huge baby boom cohorts retire and we won't be able to pay for them. And that was an argument that we won't have enough resources. So the argument is we don't have enough supply. And what's amazed me is that's been flipped around that, oh, my God, when we get an aging population, we get stagnation because we don't have enough demand. Secular stagnation is the term that's often used. And I'm going, you just flipped it over. 180 degrees, and no one's even acknowledged that. I mean, in other words, we can't both have a problem of too much demand. That that that's the Peter Peterson story. That you know, all us baby boomers, I'm a baby boomer. That you know, we need our health care, we need all these things paid for, but there's no one working. So that that was that that was the classic story. And then at the same time, we're worried. Oh, we aren't going to have enough demand because old people don't buy enough stuff, and with a smaller labor force, we aren't investing as much. Those are 180 degrees at at odds. And basically, I think neither is strictly true. I mean, both could have some merits, but I think neither is strictly true. And I think basically uh, countries adjust and Japan's the best example. Their economy is doing fine. Doesn't mean it doesn't have problems. Every economy in the world has problems. But people in Japan have been seeing rising living standards over the last two decades, even as their populations declined, their labor forces declined. So I think it's just a tremendously misplaced concern. And, you know, again, unfortunate that people spend so much time on it. Again, it makes for good headlines, not necessarily good uh, good discussion that's thoughtful. <laughs> anyway, everybody here, uh, again, please make sure you follow Dean Baker. Uh, Dean, appreciate your knowledge and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.